Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Now, at this point in the show... Oh, hello, Michael. Oh, hello, Andrew. Uh, it's, nice to, it's nice to be here with you in our decadent surroundings. Yes. Relaxing on our comfortable recording chairs <laughs> with our expensive microphones. No, no fire. It's too warm <laughs> okay. for the fire. Expensive equipment, all kitted out by Senior Demanza. Yeah. Because he likes our show. He gives he? His, our show has a high budget. He favours us. Yeah. He d- <laughs> At the moment, he favours us. Yes. More money to the top three shows. <laughs> so you've always got to try and stay in that top three. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how we manage then. Yeah. To be honest. Anyway, this is the point of the show where we normally say, have we done anything this week? And we usually say, no. No, because we're rather boring mm. by and large however this week we did go to well I say this week I mean it was this week when you're listening to us this, you listening to us is two weeks removed from this week although we did come back from it this week but for us yes, yes. but for the future people it who are listening to it the show, old news it's old news that yeah. we went to London Film and Comic Con mm. well, this is the first time we've talked about it on the show yes and that is, obviously, if it's not talked about on the show... It doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. <laughs> I think this is fair to say. Pixar do you, GTFO. Do you agree with that statement? Okay, yeah. This is reality. Right. Everything else is a fabrication the, of your fevered brain. And the pictures and the statuses on Facebook... They're fake. Okay. Everything is fake. You Everything is the Matrix, except the show. Right. So the show is our reality. The pictures of Stan's signature were doctored. <laughs> we didn't actually meet him. No, I'm just in a tank somewhere. <laughs> Fluid being piped into my eyeballs. That sounds gross. It is, in every conceivable way. But I have broke through, because I am the Neo <laughs> of the comic podcasting world, and this show was the main... No, that's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah. I have broke free from the confines of the reality that is forced upon us right. by our masters, who want to keep us in chains. Okay. And Peter Pumpkinhead. And I have broken through of those chains, and I have created the show, which is this. Right. And in the show, we are all free to live and breathe and be who we want to be. Okay. But all of that yeah. is preamble. <laughs> That's a long way to us to going to. Lo- there's a lot of begins before you get to the Batman. <laughs> yeah. It's all preamble to us saying we went to London Film and Comic Con. We did, and we had a glorious time. Well, I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, yeah. When I say we, I mean the royal we. I'm like the queen. Oh, yeah. Philip, <laughs> did one have a good time at London Film and Comic Con, Philip? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, yes. <laughs> Philip, get off the corgis! <laughs> oh, I'm on the carpet again, Lizzie. 
Anyway, that, that aside, can you tell I've, I've, uh, I've had very little sleep? Yeah. <laughs> London Film and Comic Con, I had a good time. Did you have a good time? I did. Once, yeah. Once the, the pain in my feet went away, <laughs> we're Michael, all feeling in my feet. Michael got to the point where his feet didn't hurt anymore. He just couldn't feel that he had feet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So anyway, on the Thursday night before we went, this is a good story. Mm. Or I feel it's a good story. On the Thursday before we went, I did discover at what, 8.30 in the evening, that Stan the Man Lee had agreed to do a extra signing session, not part of the con. The con still hadn't actually opened officially. It was not on any publicity material, but lovable, lovable old Stan... You know, that people like to paint as being a curmudgeon and really quite evil for stealing credit from everybody. Stan, off his own back, arranged to do an extra signing for people from 11 o'clock on Friday morning through till 4 o'clock. Again, bear in mind, the con did not open until 6. Now, some people would be churlish and say, well, he made a lot of money off it. And that's true (laughs) at £40 a signature. But the point is, he didn't have to do it. And he still would have made the same amount of yeah, money. Yeah, he didn't have to do that. But he essentially made the convention start a day early, yeah. didn't he? If I mean, for those couple of hours it became the Stan Lee show. But, you know, that's why most people were going. So, we rocked up. I'll be honest with you, had I learned of this two hours earlier, we would have got on a Thursday night train. Right. And uh, I have to give a big shout-out to my lovely cousin Joanne and her fiancé, Simon, who put up with us for the weekend. Yes. And she said, yeah, you could have come down on Thursday night, we wouldn't have been bothered. Mm. So we w- but we didn't. So we got an earlier train on the Friday. We arrived at my London Euston train station, what, five past eleven? Something like that. We made good time yes. on the train. Uh, we rocked straight down to Earl's Court, joined the queue. We were in the queue for an hour now. You say we rocked straight down, we were we all stumbled around the underground going is this the right way to yeah this is where we want to be (laughs) there's only one way to go and we couldn't work it out well you know the the underground is confusing to us northerners yes (laughs) for for the idea of encasing yourself in a plastic tube (laughs) that goes through a longer speed through underground (laughs) tunnels is alien as a concept but anyway we did we got the hour and a half in the queue do you think something like that we'd done by one yeah, we, we got there about half eleven, so yeah, we'd seen him by one o'clock. The mighty Stanley signed my omnibus mm-hmm. and my old 1970s pocketbook. So he essentially signed the same thing twice for me. Yeah. Lee Ditko, Spider-Man, things. And I, was, I fist-bumped the man. You fist-bumped the man. Uh, it was yeah. the most exciting moment of your life. Did, who else, I would wear. Who else has fist-bumped Stanley? The guy in front of us in the queue. Apart from him. <laughs> and apart from the guy behind me, you saw me do it. Well, and the guy behind yeah. him, you saw him do it. They, they, they had a whole slew of rules, didn't they? No, no photos, no handshakes, no, no personalisation. But he was happy to foresee all of these. Do you know what I, th- I honestly think? They're not Stan's rules. Yeah. I think he would have been happy to shake people's hands. I, would have, I think he would have been happy to personalise your work. Yeah. It, you also didn't hand him... What you wanted to be signed oh, as well. Oh, they you to give it to, it to one a, guy. a person yeah. who passed it to Stan. Who signed it and passed it to another person. And then gave it back to you. Yeah. So, like, your contact with the man is quite limited. They really don't want you to be with him. No, no, no. Basically, no. <laughs> but he's getting on a bit. You know, maybe they're concerned that your germs yes. may contaminate the Stanley atmosphere. <laughs> And Stan may suddenly get the, the Northern Britain equivalent <laughs> of flu, and it'll just cause him to flake out. Okay. And that yes. would be bad. At least I'll stop writing bad comics now. Anyway, 
He did the fist puncher. He did. He was. He made eye contact. He said hello. He said it was a pleasure yeah. to be here. He he was very gracious and generous. He, he made he it read as, off the script. He he <laughs> made it as personal as he was allowed to make it within the very rigid confines that his people had laid down. Yes. Even Stan the man works for the man. Even Stan the man works for the man. Yeah. So that was lovely. So basically, I'd done. I was happy. Yeah. I could have gone home at that point, and I'd have been I'd have been quite content. But we went to the early bird entrance on Friday night. Friday night was easily the best night because no think. one was there. The early bird entrance thing was a, an excellently executed idea, even though the queue was right round the block. Yeah. When we arrived on Friday night, once you got in, it was relatively empty. Well, at least there was only one queue that went around. There back. is. And let's be honest, most people were going for the, the TV actors. Yeah. And film actors. That yellow Power Ranger was really popular. Yeah, and which I frankly went a bit toss about. Mm. I mean, I. Because it's not Kimberly. Yeah, I, I, you know, I couldn't give a toss about him. I had a wander through on the Saturday or the Sunday day with Jamie Bamber, is an astonishingly handsome man in real life. <laughs> you went right up close to them yeah, and got told I, off. I didn't, I didn't get told off. You did once because you went up to Jason Mews and that's frowned on. And did I in any way acknowledge the telling off? <laughs> or did I blatantly ignore you the telling you off? You carried on walking There right you up. go. So what, what were the overworked Earl's Court staff going to do to me, quite <laughs> frankly? They were, they were puddles of sweat they, they for the day. They, them chasing after me would have taken them more effort than it would have taken me to stroll away casually. They throw the sweaty clothes at you. Oh, no. So anyway, yeah, Jamie Bam, I saw Lena Heede, who was an astonishingly attractive woman. Okay. Very very nice little pretty trilby hat on. She had. No, God, no. That, that would be... That goes without saying, clearly. But I will emphasise that point just in case who else did we didn't see Paul McGann no. he was behind a big queue they didn't even want you going near him without paying hmm. Stephen um, saw him yeah Stephen had his Stephen Lacey saw had his pitch tape with him on the TARDIS which was quite yes. cool which you can tell was a lot more fun on both parties than his picture with Stanley yes yes well Paul McGann's probably you know mad for it yeah being a scouser now yes so but not but, 91 years yeah of but other than that TV stars Casper Van Dien seemed like a nice guy there were a lot of wrestlers there as well. there was a lot of wrestlers there most of them I wouldn't know if I tripped over them mm. but you know anyway so the Friday night was fun it was empty in the comic creator bit and not everyone was there as well but yeah well, not everyone was there just yet but I, we managed to check out Choward Chaikin on the Friday night yes who had an Howard audience Chaikin an audience of four days. of us yeah just doing stand up wasn't he? Yeah. There was a really funny bit where he's just he's just racking them all off, isn't he? Racking off gag after gag. Yeah. And only one I laughed at. Yeah. Everyone else was like, huh? And he just stopped. Well, that was for you. Only I got that joke. I don't even remember what it was now. No. But it was he was very funny. Mm-hmm. Very funny, man. He should just be on stage doing that. <laughs> he was hysterical. And I uh, wandered over to John Bogdanov's table and got my electric blue Superman side. Mm-hmm. Took great delight in telling him I quite like that storyline. <laughs> he just said, ta. Yeah. And then we ended up talking about Monty Python. The prisoner. The prisoner. Why they don't make actors like Patrick McGowan anymore. Other films that Patrick McGowan was in uh, were in the UK. He should go while he's on this free Earther trip. Yeah. What else did we discuss? I remember. It was a quite a lengthy Kirby. conversation. He was drawing Galactic Jack Kirby. Yeah. He was drawing a big um, Galactic, excuse me, headshot. Yeah. And um, I actually asked him, "Is this? did you reference this, or is this all from Head? Yeah. And he said, well, it's a little bit of both, because then I realised that Kirby never drew it the same way twice, so I wasn't sweating it. Yeah. Which was fair enough, I thought. So he was lovely. And Paul Galassi was nice. 
Right. Steve Ruder didn't really have a lot to, I had to talk to him. I got a signature. He was, he was very pleasant, and he was round the other side of his table. Yeah, he wasn't sat behind a desk. He was round the front chatting to people. Howard Chaykin did that a lot as well, didn't he? Yeah, Howard so, Chaykin moved all over the place. Yeah, so he was nice. I, 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 who else did we meet? Oh, that Mike Collins. Guy I met Mike Collins, who wrote the UK Spider-Man strip we covered on the show. Yeah, and um, we mentioned lovely listener. Cast your minds back. <laughs> Flashback. Go back to those shows. Yeah, Balamori moment. Go back to those shows. We actually said, oh, there's a lot of loose ends in this. Yeah. Well, I spoke to the writer of that story. Right. And he did tell me the reason there's a lot of loose ends in that story is it wasn't supposed to be four parts. Right. It was supposed to be a full year's worth of original UK material. Yeah. So, obviously, he left a lot of threads open for him to follow up later. And then at last minute, Marvel US pulled the plug. Fair enough. They didn't want to spend money making which cheaper to do reprints. So that so it's not his fault there was a lot he wanted to wrap it all up in a a special strip and they wouldn't let him. Yeah. So our complaints about that, not his fault. He was a lovely man. Yeah. So he was very nice. He had a page of original art from that as well. Mm. So I actually held in my hand the page of original artwork from that UK Spider Man story. I didn't buy it. Yeah. Because I didn't have three hundred quid. Three hundred? Yeah. But, uh, what did you do? Apart from Paul's near the Batmobile, so you had the 60s Batmobile and the 89 Batmobile. Uh, I queued up for Steve Yowl a lot. You did. You got a sketch off him, though. I did. Uh, who who mentioned how he feels towards Grant Morrison now. And was this juicy gossip? No, it wasn't. He said it was water under the bridge, but he still seemed very bitter about it. <laughs> when, he, when he skipped right over... Uh, the signed page in my invisibles yeah at least he signed it for you though oh yeah but he left about two pages in between the signatures he signed your invisibles hardcover and did you a a zenith sketch so that was nice Mm -hmm. it's a pity you can't put that zenith sketch in a zenith hardcover or something yeah of which I presume there will be one forthcoming yes he said he was happy they're doing cheaper ones now. Yeah, so all that was fun. Saturday was unbearable. Yes, it, it was, was for everyone. swelteringly hot. The queue was round the building at least twice. And there wasn't just one queue. And there wasn't just one queue. If you didn't have a ticket, you weren't getting in on Saturday. And if you had a ticket, you were only getting in because everyone was bored of queuing for four yeah, hours. Yeah, I overheard... The, uh, I was just taking a minute in the in the foyer, just having a breather and arranging to meet Michael, who was over in the comic bit. I was going through the 50p bins, pound bins, whatever. And uh, Michael was getting his Stevie Oil sketch, and I was just arranging to meet him. And I overheard the overworked cast members yeah. um, saying, basically, if they've got a ticket, we'll just lend them in at this point. So they just opened the doors and let anyone in who had a ticket. Yeah. I don't know what health and safety would have to say about that. No. But it's it's my understanding... Some you couldn't move in there as it was. No, so at that point, you and I both said, I think it's time to go to the pub, <laughs> yeah. didn't we? And that's where the best part of the weekend happened, really. For, not, the best parts of the weekend were in the pub. Yeah, no, not family related. My favourite part of the weekend was Friday night. Just yeah. kicking back with our Joanne and our Jonathan and Simon. That mm. was that was lovely, just getting to hang with them again. But Saturday afternoon, I got in touch with the lovely listener, Mark Taylor. Hello, Mark. And lovely listener Sam Savage, hello Sam, who'd both texted me or Facebook me and said, we're in this queue. When we get in, 
um, we'll, we'll meet up with you and say hi. And yeah. this was at 10 o'clock in the morning, when they were still optimistic that they were going to get in. <laughs> so by 1.30 in the afternoon, yeah. I get in touch with Martin and I say, have you moved yet? And he said, no. Still queuing up outside of Earl's Court tube station. So I basically said to him, look, you're not getting in, dude. Yeah. You've not got a ticket. It's not happening. So I found him, and we found Sam Savage, and we just basically said to him, look, if you're really not bothered about going in, let's hit the pub. And both of them said, nah, let's go and have a drink. Yeah. So we hit the pub on Saturday afternoon. We got in touch with Stephen Lacey, my fantastic cast cohort, and he popped down for a bit as well. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the best part of Saturday. Because I'd got all my signatures and sketches. I was just hitting the the bins at that point and looking at some of the overpriced merchandise. Mm. Which didn't, I didn't think the merchandise was awful. There was a lot of good stores with pound comics. Yeah. But for every one of them, there were shops with incredibly overpriced. Mm. I mean, the Hunger Games seems big at the minute. Yeah. And um, Game of Thrones is huge at the minute. Mm. Harry Potter is still huge. Yes. And Star Wars is still huge. And so all of that stuff seemed to be commanding huge prices. Mm. And then merchandise-wise, for every store with really cool toys and such... You had those stores that were just had little Lego figures they'd made themselves yeah, that were selling for there ridiculous was prices. An awful lot of stalls that had just made stuff. What was the one I mocked? Which Oh the you one that to be more specific. <laughs> Narrow it down for me, Dad. The one that was just selling framed comic covers. Oh yeah, yeah. For thirty quid a pop. They're not very memorable or good I mean, comics. I'm looking at them going, I can frame a frigging comic. <laughs> yeah. What, what, I mean, alright, the jewellery and stuff that they'd made themselves, you could argue, was a little bit overpriced, given that your mum or your sister could probably make something just as good. Yeah. But at the same time, there is a creative endeavour has taken place there. Hmm. They've made that, so it's you can argue that, it is, that there is a uniqueness to it. Yeah. And alright, they're selling, they're selling their creative words, and alright, if they're selling them for something, they can get the money for them, for deuce. Mm. I didn't mock that. Yeah. I mocked the price of some of it. Yeah. But I didn't mock their creative endeavours. Well, it's the rule of art. Yeah. You charge a tenner for every hour you put into it. Yeah, so fair enough. So fair play to them. If you've spent however long making these Harry Potter earrings, or lightsaber earrings, or whatever, TARDIS yeah. earrings... Seemed quite popular. You're charging 40 quid a pop for him. If people are willing to pay you that for a play, you've made it, fair enough. But just putting a comic in a frame and saying frame comic cover. So, what? What? How is that creative or is it just, is it just or? the cover or if you open it up with a full comic? I, I have no idea. Maybe I just remember stirring a gog at the fact that this was £30 <laughs> for a framed comic cover. Maybe they were expensive frames. <laughs> be solid gold <laughs> so that might be more expensive maybe, I mean, maybe bronze that, that was a little bit shocking but it was nice seeing the 1989 Batmobile and the 1966 Batmobile yeah. it's like you sit in them like yeah. the guy at, at the comic con in Wigan he let you sit in kit which was high point of my day but uh, they didn't let you do that maybe because uh, Wigan is in London so no one's going to steal it there is that That's well you couldn't steal Apologies the Batmobile from upstairs I want to know how they got it up in the hall what were you going to do drive it down the escalator <laughs> which would have been <laughs> awesome I freely admit but, so it was nice you know. but no the Saturday afternoon um, with Mark and, and Stephen and Sam was, was probably my, my favourite bit of the, the convention yes to be honest with and him and then we went back to the pub again later yeah and uh uh, Sam gave us a present 
Yeah. He gave me Which a you copy. got very excited about. I did. He gave me an old Fantastic Four pocket book. Yeah. One of the British ones with black and white art in. And I, I maintain Kirby looks better in black and white. A lot of 60s comics look better in black and white because the colouring techniques just weren't very good. Yeah. They look much better on Comixology now they've touched up the colour and stuff. I don't think the new recolored ones look... Do you not, do you not like them? No. Oh, yeah, that's fair enough. So, Saturday night, Stephen invited us to the pub. Yeah. There is a recurring theme here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You lovely <laughs> listener. You will... Uh, you us will alcoholics. Us, us, us going. Yeah, no, no, no. You cannot be an alcoholic in London. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when a round of drinks costs that much, yeah. alcoholism is off the table quite frankly so we went to this pub in um, in the middle of London in London town we got off at London Underground we saw the Shard and we went ooh look that's been in films that has <laughs> and we were like ooh the Thames that's been in films that has how awesome I wanted to go and see that but you know the boy James Bond chases down the river oh yeah in the um, whichever James Bond film that is it's Face Brawls no one isn't it I wanted to go there okay but we didn't get the time sadly and I wanted to go as well you know with the prisoner drives down the road to resign oh, yeah, yeah. so wanted to go there but anyway we didn't do any of that we went to the pub instead and Stephen had, had somehow corralled Chase Masterson into singing <laughs> Stephen, and dancing and asking yeah, I, I firmly believe it was him I honestly believe he put a bag over her head he came after stuck her in the pub and said look these people will buy you CD sing was it, was it more of a if you come down and talk in front of us I'll do your uh, technic yeah, <laughs> yeah Stephen ended up being tech, tech wizard to the stars <laughs> but anyway she was uh, she was alright she was lovely you had no idea who she was did you no You've never seen Star Trek Deep Space Nine, have you? No. So you were sat there going, this is all very well and good, but ooh, pints of Guinness. <laughs> yeah. So you were just interested in the beer. <laughs> yeah. It's fair enough. It's all right. She was lovely. It was nice. It was a nice night. And we had to take off relatively early because Sunday morning, Simon was doing the 10K London run. So me and Michael and my cousin Joanne... Walked 10K before we got to the run. Walked the run to <laughs> yeah. support him in his, his charity endeavour. And we just took pictures of Big Ben and... Yeah, we were tourists. The World War One troops that were walking past, which was lovely. It was a lovely mm. moment. And uh, the troop in the colour people were out, the horses and, and stuff, and, and Westminster. And, and, of course, Big Ben. I was quite disappointed I didn't see any people with the big fluffy hats. I was quite in disappointed. The, the Beef Eaters. Yeah. I was, well, we didn't actually go up to Buckingham Palace, did we? We just kind of went, oh, look, Queenie lives there. <laughs> yeah. Philip! <laughs> they're all running past our house again, Philip! Did you release the house? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a charity thing, Lizzie. 100 years since the war. Oh, I remember 100 years since the war, Philip. I just sat on the throne at that point. Well, were you taking another dump, Lizzie? <laughs> anyway, so we didn't actually go up to Buckingham. We saw it a so fun to be a royal. <laughs> I threw the money out and watched them run. I watched the peasants run, Lizzie. <laughs> So we went to Downing Street, by which I mean we saw Downing we Street the gates where the through the jail cell <laughs> that now is the end of Downing Street. So basically, we keep our Prime Minister in jail. <laughs> I heartily approve. Either that or Cameron's so scared of us. Anyway, I, I heartily approve of keeping all politicians in jail. Yep. We can say that, because we're not being biased one side or the other. Mm. Oh. <laughs> So that was that was a good a good morning, and then we went back to the thing and we pooted around, uh, and the journey home was relatively uneventful. So yeah, so thanks to Stephen and Sam and Mark, and we also saw Michael Georgiou, who uh, and David Wayne who had a stall in the convention. 
uh, always I've never met Michael before mm-hmm. but I've met David before so it was nice to meet or see them again respectively and uh, it was a jolly good weekend and I brought it in under budget I came home Barely. with uh, at least two quid twenty six <laughs> of all the money that I took with me. I came back with two pound twenty six. Yes, which I thought was result. You're not in the red, dude. Still in the black because <laughs> we were living off apples all weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. We did, but they were nice apples. Very, very tasty. Um, pink lady apples. Well, if you're going to live off apples, no, might as well be good. You know, nothing, nothing nicer than a pink lady, a big juicy pink lady in your mouth. Moving straight and on that note I think that means that we're going to have to uh, move on to emails uh, of which we probably won't do many tonight we've probably only got time for one or two so we'll, we'll slide one in from Gotham Kid Gotham Kid's email is entitled Forever Crossed Over Trey Hooks Gotham Kid the mighty Mr. Gotham evening Andrew and Michael evening Trey I listened to the Forever Evil episode today shuttling back and forth from work both of you made a lot of comments about the new 52 I don't think it's all unnecessarily violent and 90s cool the worst offenders didn't last long in the line and were primarily from Liffield and Lobdell however I think the reboot was largely unnecessary from a storytelling perspective you mentioned that the Batman and Green Lantern books were pretty much left unchained I think only the Superman books the Justice League titles Flash and Green Arrow were most affected Aquaman and Wonder Woman, two of the biggest hits of the new 52, could just as easily have been done without the reboot, and the addition of Shin, the others, and his history with Black Manta being new knowledge. The same with Wonder Woman. The truth of her heritage was not presented in Wonder Woman as a five-year-later reveal, but as something learned in the present day. My biggest disappointments are with Justice League, the Superman titles, and the Green Lantern line. The Justice League has had some okay moments, but they haven't done anything to live up to the pre-crisis pedigree of the team. I think Pack and Lobdell have actually done a good job with Superman's character and moral compass, but the current teams can't seem to come up with an interesting protagonist. Maybe it's because of things like Forever Evil that certain classic characters have been out of bounds, but outside of the Lois is possessed by Brainiac subplot that is inconsistently portrayed, they won't use the classic villains, even Luther has been absent. What's a forever evil? It was okay, I guess. I'm in complete agreement with Andy about the never-ending event saga with no big payout. The point was clearly to put the villains in the limelight as two of the ancillary events, Blight in the Magic Books, and the Teen Titans future arc was specifically designed to take off the board anyone who could stand anything against the Syndicate. As an old-school Silver and Bronze Age fan, my knowledge worked a little bit against me. I expected Alexander Luther to make a stand against the Syndicate, fail, and his sacrifice inspire Luther to change and as a matter of fact one of my biggest problems with the story was Alexander Luther being as depraved and evil as the rest of the syndicate classically Earth 3 is a dark mirror alternate Earth where evil always wins though there is good in that universe it's doomed to fail therefore the villains here are the heroes there we even see this born out of the Justice League issue that gives the backstory of Johnny Quick and Atomica the rogues were all policemen why then does Alexander Luther not fit the pattern I also think you potentially overlooked one of the reasons for Luther's change in attitude, namely that he's achieved his main character motivation. The world has seen that it can't always rely on Superman to save them, and the one who could defeat the menace that Superman couldn't was Lex Luthor. The anti-monity reveal didn't do much for me because we've seen his return twice in the past three to four years in Sinestro War and Blackest Night. Finally, I love the Metal Man. Always have, always will. I don't think they're one-trick ponies, but good writing is the key. You could never tell another Plastic Man metamorph or Doom Patrol story, but I always look forward to a good Metal Men tale. My only other guilty pleasure is Captain Carrot. (laughs) (laughs) 
Till next time, Trey Hooks. Well, thank you very much, Trey. Yeah, um, some good points, though. Forever Evil is so long ago, I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. So moving on, <laughs> we're going to be going through a bunch of emails now about Forever Evil. That's <laughs> such a long time ago at this point. Forever Whatever is from Chris and Cindy Franklin, although I suspect Cindy didn't actually contribute to the <laughs> writing of this email. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Chris. Thanks for the overview of Forever Evil, so I don't have to read it. Seriously, it didn't sound bad, but it readily points towards the problems I have with the new DC. Number one, the over-the-top violence. I know it's part of it, but... Blah. Number two, the focus on making the villains more interesting and sympathetic at the detriment of the heroes. You'll never get that triumphant hero moment of the League returning in this era. Most of DC's writers seem incapable of giving the heroes those moments nowadays. I guess they think it's too hokey. Unless they're just going to go ape destroying stuff, it's not going to happen. Number three, the reliance on a continuity they abandoned. As I said in my reply to the views from the long box where Andy and Michael Bailey examined the new 52, the new DCU is neither fish nor fowl. It's not the old universe, but it's not really fresh either. Relying on an artificial backstory we never witnessed and using the old multiverse and post-crisis, post-zero hour, post-infinite crisis, and post-fruity peebles universe as crutches. Here comes the anti-monitor. You shouldn't get exist. By the way, get off my lawn. Having said all that, it didn't sound awful. I think taking a character with a fan following like Nightwing and making him an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wannabe is as dumb-headed as all get out, but I guess it's better than killing him outright. I think DiDio's has stated his beef with Dick is that he doesn't get what his purpose in the DCU is, since he's now neither Batman nor Robin. I guess someone didn't clue Dan in that folks like the character because he's relatable. He's psychologically healthier than any Batman we've seen in the past 30 years, and he's been shown to be a great leader, tactician, and friend. What's not to like? Looking forward to your examination of Legends. I haven't reread that in years, but recall it being quite good, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Much appreciated, everyone who emailed tonight, but I think we're just going to have to get on with the show, I'm afraid. We uh, waffled on about London Super... It's not Super! <laughs> London Film and Comic Con. Far too much. So after this commercial break for another podcast that will be an excellent podcast, we'll be right back with Ming Chen. <laughs> And the other one, like Zapsick. Yeah, that's him. I never remember him, do I? Yeah. And the smug one. Oh, Alan Moore. Yeah, him. Yeah. And uh, the bloke who runs the shop. Yeah, him. <laughs> Next time, kids. Same fat time, same fat <laughs> channel. All that gubbins. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy and Chris Franklin, for the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And we're back. We didn't really go anywhere. No, we didn't. Should we just start straight off with the issue? Do it! Okay. Mr. Miracle 2, drive by Derby. 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 
has a cover of a close-up of Mr. Miracle's face. Are these all the covers that are close to Professor? All issue twos yeah, have close yeah. Uh, the issue had a different penciler, Billy Dallas Patton, and inker Michael Burr. Uh, that's alright, isn't it? To close his face. It's close to his face and somebody trying to emulate Kirby Crackle through computer colouring. Yes. Which doesn't quite work, does it? Not quite. No. Anyway, carry on. Okay. As Shiloh Norman escapes from the drive-bys, Metron and the Black Racer continue to play their game against each other over Norman's life. Shilo escapes through the sewers and leaves after the noise dies down to find only police and destroyed cars. Whilst walking, Shilo spots Metron, however, he's now completely disabled and unable to speak. Another man pushes Shilo away and takes Metron away. When Shilo shows the other man his mother box, the man takes Shilo back to the barracks where he sees the rest of the new gods in disguise. However, Shilo is thrown out when Darkseid drives through and watches. Later, Shilo leaves his therapist and calls ZZ to tell him of an idea he had for a new stunt. Meanwhile, his therapist, Dr. Dizard, informs Darkseid of the mother box and that Metron has been grooming Norman to become a servant of the new gods. Uh, so far, this Mr. Miracle series has been jolly good fun. That one I, issue. Yeah, the, the, I, I, well, I've read them all now. Yeah, yeah, Obviously. Yeah. I would like to know where Scott Free is. But what I liked about this one, it was very much like there is an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight by Brian Talbot that I could be wrong, but I think was the first time did this idea that you're not actually the hero. Yeah. Everything that you think you are the hero is just a delusion in your mind. Right. And subsequently, Smallville have done that story. Yeah. and Buffy did that story where she was in the mental asylum and so on and so forth so when they do stories like that of which this is that type of story yeah Morrison's not doing anything particularly original in the, the Mr. Miracle series he's doing it very well yeah but he's not doing something that hasn't been done before but I do love how he shoehorns in all of the representatives of Apocalypse in such a way that you're going alright oh, that's Metron yeah alright that's Desaad Alright, that's and that's really, really good. He does go a little bit heavy handed in the panel where we see the forever people. Yeah. Because there's what's his name? Big Burr or something. Something like that. Behind the human analogues. And there's Orion. And there's Orion and, and, the and the Harfather and all that stuff. So that was it was interesting. But the best bit of this was not only Dissard as the therapist, basically crushing this poor girl's dreams. Yeah. Because he's an utter scumbag. But the last page where Darkseid is now on Earth. And he's, um, what's his name from Pulp Fiction? Oh, Marcellus Wallace. Yeah, he's Marcellus Wallace. Yeah. Isn't he? That is totally who he's supposed to be. And I love how he's dressed and he's just got the little anti-life as a tie pin. Yeah. He's really cool. So, good that one. Mm. Very enjoyable. No, I didn't have much to say about it. Did you not have much? Did you not like the Mister Miracle series just generally? I don't think Mister Miracle kicked off until issue three. Yeah, or issue four. Yeah. Really? No, issue three is just brutal. I, yeah, it and is. It's it's almost a descent into hyperviolence that the series hasn't had. Yeah. I mean, there have been some brutal moments. The splash page of Bulletia that we're going to cover next is quite brutal. Yeah. But what happens to Shilo in issue three makes you wince. See, I think... Well, we'll get, we'll get to it when we we'll talk about it. We'll get there when we get there. I think yeah. in a dark side story, that kind of brutalness is... 
Not I necessarily. Don't, I don't think uh, Kirby ever really had somebody have the nads cut off with bolt cutters. I wouldn't say it's necessary, but okay, new DC. <laughs> Yeah, but this wasn't, was it? This wasn't New 52. It's still New DC, though. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So you don't really have a lot to say about that one? No, I think, ah. it, I think it really kicks off later. Alright, fair enough. Bulleteer issue 2, Who Killed Seven Soldiers, has another close-up. Yeah, it's a bit boring, isn't it? Kind of. I mean, artistically, there is nothing wrong with it. Yeah. But it's 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 like when DC... I think we mentioned this last time, when DC did that month of just close-ups of faces. Yeah. After a while, it gets a little bit boring. <laughs> And that's a little bit boring. So it does the job, I suppose. Yeah. Agent Heligan runs Alex through a murder case. The victim is the spider with an I, and the suspect is his brother Tom, who is also the spider but with a Y. Excellent. Who disappeared before showing up in Greg Saunders' group of heroes. They watched the bike footage of the spider hunt and the harrowing. Alex was the seventh member of the team who dropped out, and Heligan informs her that if she did join them, then she would also be dead. Heligan takes Alex to a penitentiary to meet the Iron Hand, Greg Saunders' old arch-nemesis. Once threatened, he tells them about the Nebula Man who he used to be in contact with, and that, believing Saunders was a racist, gave his horn that summons the Nebula Man to one of Saunders' heroes. Heligan laughs and says that Saunders wasn't a racist at all, but was actually a werewolf. And what the Iron Hand saw as him threatening members of another race was actually him threatening members of his own kind. Hand says that Saunders came to him in a dream and shot him through the soul. And as he says this, his chest begins to bleed and he collapses. Next, Alex takes Heligan to her sister's wedding. And on the way there, Heligan says that the Nebula and the Sheeda are from the future. And once they reach the wedding, reveals that her sister is marrying the werewolf that Saunders threatened. Some time later, Alex decides to leave her home and leaves it to her new lodger, a young woman who says that what she needs is her own arch nemesis. She's not leaving home. No, she's She's moving. accepting a job as a bodyguard, so she's not going to be at home for a while. Alright, She's not actually leaving home. A couple of things about this one. I mean, I have a big long wrap-up of what I thought about the whole shebang when we get there. Yeah, we actually did notes this week. Mm. <laughs> Marked contrast to the previous two episodes <laughs> where London Film and Comic Con got in the way of us doing the show. Um, but there's a lovely line in this. So tell me you're not one of those post-modern superheroes. Tell me you have a costume. Which is also, not only, sorry, Grant Morrison ripping the piss out of himself yeah, because of what he did with X-Men, putting them all in leather jackets and cool stuff, but also out of Mark Miller's reinvention of superheroes and various other writers, Ed Brubaker's Iron Fist in there, take him out of his costume, and <laughs> Hawkeye, Matt Fraction's Hawkeye, very rarely wears his costume yeah. and, and stuff like that. So I thought that was a nice touch. Mm. That Grant Morrison, of all people, yeah. should be the one embracing costumes when he was the guy who was, were the one who said, let's get rid of the costumes. And now he seems to have done a full circle and been the guy who says, no, I actually quite like my superheroes wearing costumes. It's just a change of times. Yeah, I suppose so, as the films made it cool again to wear a costume. Well, once again, it was the films that made it cool to Cause not it was, wear a yeah, costume. Yeah, it was the X-Men films that had Wolverine with his oh-so-hilarious yellow spandex line Yeah, when one wasn't spandex and two... This is so not spandex. Yeah, so... You know, but I thought that was quite interesting. But this Bulleteer storyline has been a very, very good hmm. because again, it's another stock Morrison theme of which this is replete. Yeah, 
of the reluctant hero and examining not only story structure, which again he's all over this this stuff. Yeah. How a story works and how he's telling it, and his approach to telling this multi-layered, multi-character crossover without it actually being a crossover. Yeah. Which I'll give him is very cleverly done. You don't have to read any of the other series if you want to read about a bulletin. And yet, bulletin and yet ties into it ties in three to other. three other main events. Yeah. So that's an exceptionally good job. But he's also the one here who's telling the story of what it means to be a hero, which is another one of his stock themes. Yeah. So essentially what you're getting from this is everything that Morrison has ever been interested in, in one storyline. Hmm. Because Bulletia, Alex doesn't want to be a hero. She's, she's a Marvel character. Yeah. She's basically found herself in this situation where she has superpowers... And she's not the kind of person who goes, ha-ha, I will use my power for evil. <laughs> so the only other option open to her is to use her powers for good, but she's then got to find a way to monetize that yeah. because she's still got bills. That's a Marvel hero. Hmm. So I liked that. But the bulletiest I really like this bulletier storyline. Yeah. While I was initially off-put by his fascination with fetishism again, and the fact that, let's be honest, the first issue of this was Cheesecake. Yeah. This has actually grown into being a really interesting character study about the nature of heroism. Mm. Specifically in a universe where you've got a Superman and a Batman and you've got these big gun heroes. Mm. You've also got these lower level ones who never quite make the headlines and are only in it to be famous. As referenced in the Zatanna issues, yeah. where they talk about the American Idol generation of superheroes. So that's an interesting theme that he's layered through different stories as well. Thematically, that's exactly the same in Bulletier as it is in Zatanna, but he's not pointing to American Idol yeah. and saying it's the American idolization of superheroes. We want to be famous for being famous. Yeah. It's the same theme, but what Alex is doing is she's not trying to go on a reality show. She's trying to use her powers for good, but make money out of it at the same time. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting, but I really did like the the Bulletier miniseries. That gets better again, as with Mr. Miracle, as we get into issue three and four. Mm. Not that issues one and two were bad, Yeah. but you needed issue one and two to set up three and four. Yeah. And three and four in both series just kick ass, I think. Even though Mr. Miracle really does the wacky. Yeah. Whereas Bulletier never goes wacky. No. Or I don't think it did. It's a little. I mean, it's more fairy taleish, actually. Yeah, I think Bullet is a standard superhero story in the same way that Guardian was in Volume One. Yeah. Mister Miracle is more Kirby whack job, mm. and Zatanna kind of straddles the line. And Frankenstein, Frankenstein's Clint Eastwood are the equaliser, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. He bears Frankenstein. I mean, we'll cover that. We've got a Frankenstein issue coming up next, but Frankenstein is basically a non-character of all the characters in this play. He doesn't change. Yeah. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't become a new character. He doesn't start in one place and have a journey to somewhere else. There's a little something near the end. little tiny bit, but for the most part, he's Clint Eastwood in the Fistful of Dollars movies. Yeah. At the end of that movie, he's the same guy. But you don't want him to change, No, though. well, that's the point. The yeah. events just revolve around him. Hmm. And he's pretty damn cool. He is. He's pretty yeah. fun. What I like about the Bulletier stuff is the Greg Saunders stuff. All the kind of ghost stuff with him coming back and haunting everyone. Because mm. he does it quite a few times, and he was barely in the first issue, but becomes quite important near the end. As we go along. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Frankenstein issue two, Red Zombies, has another close-up. Ah, but this one's good. Yeah. Because this one, you've got Frankenstein sneering at you. With one half shut eye. Whilst holding a gun. That's a Clint Eastwood Western cover. Yeah. That's a go-ahead punk make my day, isn't (laughs) it? Yeah. That's, um, that's, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those with guns and those that dig. You dig. That's what that is. Yeah. So I quite like that one. Doug Mankey has really been a revelation in this. Yeah. As somebody who's never been the biggest Doug Mankey fan, if you cast your mind back, lovely listener, to when we did Final Crisis, I was always a bit, oh, it's a Doug Mankey issue. Mm. And yet his artwork in this Frankenstein series has just been phenomenally good. And yet good. it's not been his best art. Do you not think? I, I think this is the best thing I've seen him do. I think he's a lot better now, but he's still got he's still doing superhero comics, so he doesn't look good compared to, say, Ivan Reese or J.G. Jones. Right, See, so not doing a superhero strip here, you think freed him up? I think Frankenstein. Because basically what he's doing here is Frankenstein on Mars. Yeah, yeah. He's basically doing John Carter of Mars, but with Frankenstein in it. I think Frankenstein is the best thing he's ever done because his art style fits it and yeah it, it just totally suits the strip hmm. and I've I've completely changed my opinion on Doug Manka yeah. based purely on this four issue series Frankenstein now on Mars searches for Melmoth's gold mine at the mine Melmoth is explaining that the gold is to fund his war against Gloriana who left him at Camelot to walk back to the future the long way Frankenstein breaks into the mine with the red zombies behind him. He frees Billy Breezer, saying that his friends are waiting for him on the other side of the portal. After freeing all the children, Frankenstein feeds Melmoth to the creatures that live on Mars, knowing that he'll still be alive after he comes out, just not one piece. And that's that. Is that it? Pretty yeah. That was a pretty uh, a pretty short synopsis. I I really got into this. Fra- Can I just say there is nothing wrong with the phrase Frankenstein on Mars? Yeah, that is just genius on every conceivable level. I like how he's on the planet at the beginning of the issue and he's still on it at the end. Yeah, and he, he is. That's this is what we were just saying earlier. He shows up, does what he's got to do, and gets the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, the story isn't about him in this particular instance. This is just tying up loose ends from Clarion. Yeah, basically. And issue three, issue four of this is basically just him getting rid of the nebula. Which is tying up loose ends from, from Shining Knight and Zatanna. Yeah, so basically Frankenstein is just used as the guy who comes in and cleans up the mess. Yeah. You can argue, I mean we'll say more when we get there, but you can argue the series ends with Frankenstein issue four. I don't really think you need Seven Soldiers issue one. It ties it every. It's like it brings it all together. When you play those arcade games and everyone has their own story and ending, yeah, it's like that. But everyone's ending is tied together in one issue. Yeah, I mean, it does play around with another one of Morrison's stock tropes of time travel and playing wackily with the idea of travelling through time. Yeah, because like you said, the dark side in this has already yeah. had Final Crisis happen to him. Even though we've not read Final Crisis yet. Yeah. Which is quite a clever idea. I mean, he doesn't really make any allusions to that. No. Does he? It only becomes more clear when you read Final yeah, Crisis. Yeah, it's only which one I'm of sure he only came up with the idea when he was writing it. Do you think? It. Do you not think he had that as part of the, the master plan? I don't. Do you think he actually has a master plan, or do you think he just. If he doesn't have a master plan, he is remarkably good at making everything dovetail after the fact. Yeah. I can't believe he doesn't have in his head some vague, loose, this-all-interconnects kind of idea. 
Yeah. Because it all just works too well together for it to be just a stroke of luck. Well, Seven Swords itself is the sequel to an old Justice JLA classified story. Yeah, with Ed McGuinness. Yeah. Why is that not in these treads? It's in the JLA stuff. Oh, right. I mean, you don't need it. You read all this and you didn't need it and I read all of it. Yeah, no, no, no. I I don't feel I missed out on anything by only reading these two. Yeah. Which is the way it should be. This is a two-volume set of a story. I should be able to read these two hardcovers and get a complete satisfying meal, which I did. Did they mention it in the last issue of Frankenstein? Right. The JLA stuff. But it's just that. It's just a mention. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Alright, photos. That, I kind of liked the Melmoth and Frankenstein stuff in this, though. And it, it, this is the issue where Melmoth says that he created Frankenstein, isn't it? Yeah. Because he gave Frankenstein the, the power to stay alive. No, I, I kind of like it and how it gives you more knowledge to things that have already happened. When he talks about Camelot and his relationship with Gloriana and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, Gloriana Tenenbrae. Yeah. Which means Queen of Darkness. Does it? Yeah. I didn't know that. There you go. So, yeah, uh, the Frankenstein, there's not really a lot to say about it in that it is Frankenstein cleaning up the loose ends. But it's just really cool. But it's fun. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with Frankenstein storming across a Martian landscape and hacking at people (laughs) who deserve it. Yeah. There's... I I, I like the bit at the beginning, though, where he's just travelling across it, writing his diary. Yeah. And the Manke's martial landscapes are beautiful. Yeah. The the art in it, like I said, has just been a complete revelation to me, who has not previously been somebody who appreciates Manke as an artist. Mm. And then just reading this, this Frankenstein stuff, and I'm like, why does he not draw like this all the time? He's gotten more refined working on superheroes. Right. Which is better. Okay, fair yeah. enough. I do like how this issue also gives closure on Melmoth that we didn't get in Clarion. Yeah. It ties up a lot of the loose ends that were left in Clarion. Bum, 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 the witch boy. <laughs> Not growing old yet. No, and it never will. <laughs> Do you think they'll bring that over into his new series? It would be very nice if they did. I thought, I thought, but Peter David may want a royalty check. So. <laughs> Next up is Mr. Miracle issue 3, Radio Bedlam, which has a cover of Mr. Miracle fighting the new Baron Bedlam. All of them. Plural. Yeah, it's very good. Yes. It's an excellent cover. I really do like that cover. Mm. Freddie Williams the second did but that cover. Once again, this issue has another artist change, this time done by said Freddie E. Williams the second. Who did the other ones? Uh, Pascal Ferry did the first one. Why did they change artists? I, I, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure um, Williams did both. Do you know, it's one of those things, if I'd been reading this back to back, I probably would have noticed. Because the art's blatantly different. Yeah, it's so. complete. But because you're reading issue of Frankenstein, then issue of Bulleteer, then issue of Mr. Miracle, it completely completely bypassed me. The but last yeah. two issues are a lot more cartoonish. Yeah, which doesn't hurt it. No. In any way. So, alright, fair enough. I hadn't noticed that at the time, but yeah, okay. Baron Bedlam becomes the new hit sensation, replacing Mr. Miracle, and with ZZ under Granny's influence, Shilo argues with him before leaving for his show. Shilo's girlfriend goes to speak to ZZ, but is instead captured by Granny Goodness. At the show, Shilo sees that Baron Bedlam, who was supposed to be opening for his show, 
has taken all of Shiloh's friends who tell him that Bedlam is better than Shiloh is at everything. Enraged, Shiloh attacks, but Bedlam is just one of an army of identical machines who hold Shiloh long enough for Darkseid to whisper the anti-life equation into his ear. Shiloh leaves in hysterics until he sees a man give his coat to his wife to shelter her from the rain. This act of kindness fuels Shiloh to head straight back to Darkseid, however he is beaten further and tied up. Whilst Bedlam takes over Miracle's show, Shiloh is taken to an isolated location where he is beaten and set on fire. In the following days during his recovery, Darkseid does all he can to keep putting Shiloh down, until two unknown men say that the life trap has him in his grip, and that there's only one way out. Uh, he doesn't just set him on fire. They beat him quite severely with a crowbar. They go all office based on him. Then they fill him full of alcohol and set him on fire. Then they take a drill to him. Yeah. And then they take bolt cutters to him. It's it's thoroughly unpleasant. <laughs> but what makes it is that the people that are doing it are just idly discussing their lives. Yeah. And there's a, there's a vague Quentin Tarantino influence to it, and there's a little bit of Clockwork Orange in here, hmm. if they just had, like, you know, a mundane song playing in the background. And tonally, it made me deeply uncomfortable, and he kind of almost lost me at this point, because the rest of it hasn't been this gratuitously violent... Yeah. For no reason. And although, I wouldn't say it's for yeah, no reason. Well, that's what I've said. Although you can argue the validity of it and why it needs to be as graphic as it is, it's still a deeply uncomfortable and unpleasant read. For me, that was up there with anything Robert Kirkman's done in The Walking Dead. I kind of like that, though. No, I don't like it. Good. But you've got this story where essentially you're showing him rise to fame and then having everything stripped from him and having everything stripped from him. It's born again. Yeah. Basically. So, they, they basically, they leave him in a wheelchair having to wear nappies. Uh, which Darkseid puts on a higher shelf. Yeah, so that he can't reach him. And it's it's just not a very pleasant read after the first two issues that were quite nice. Mm-hmm. I think there's another thing, though, after this, like having this low, when you get to the next issue... Mm, when he, and he, But he doesn't actually win in the next issue? No, not... That's kind of the thing. Maybe Final Crisis was planned. Possibly. Because that's when he wins. Because that's when Mr. Miracle gains his... So that... Mr. Miracle's victory in Final Crisis explains why Darkseid does all of this to him. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. See? Yeah. So it's Darkseid getting his own back, but at the time of reading this, you don't know that. Yeah. So, I was deeply uncomfortable with this one. I've got to be honest with you. I can understand from a narrative point of view why it was as graphic as it was, but it didn't make for very pleasant reading. No. I have to say. Maybe, maybe he didn't want it to be pleasant. No, I, you that can argue... That you feel for the, the Mr. Miracle as well. I'm not saying that he didn't mean it to be unpleasant, because, alright, in that respect, he succeeded. Yeah. But I, I, it wasn't... I didn't enjoy it, is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. No, but I do understand about the whole Mr. Miracle doesn't really get much closure in this. No, it, it, of, the, of the main miniseries, he loses. Yeah. He doesn't win. Frankenstein's going to clear victory. 
But does he though? We'll, th- we'll talk about it more at the end. All right, but okay. Does Darkseid win in the end? No, no, Darkseid doesn't win. But Mr. Miracle doesn't win either. Mm, does it? It's kind of a, a it's, it's nobody wins, and sometimes that's okay in the Mr. Miracle strip. Yeah. The Sheeder are gotten rid of. Yeah. But by and large, the Sheeder are irrelevant to what it is I'm enjoying about this anyway. Yeah. So anyway, go on. Tell us about the next one. Bulleteer issue three, twenty-first century schizoid Superman has a cover of the Bulleteer lying on a pile of bullets. It's it's another gratuitous tit shot, isn't it? Pretty much, but that is sure that that Yannick Paquette can make some delicious cheesecake. Yeah, but it doesn't. F- it's I get that the cheesecake is a part of the the story in the case of the Bulleteer because the whole premise was that. Alex was this incredibly attractive 27-year-old and her husband was obsessed with keeping her like that. Yeah. So, like we mentioned last week, there was a thematic element there where they're talking about our current obsession with youth. Yeah. And maintaining that youth and facelifts and boob jobs and all of that gubbins. Mm. But then the covers are just him doing pin-up shots. Yeah, but the cheesecake element of it, it is very easy to look at that cheesecake element and it detract from the story that he's actually telling, yeah. which is actually empowerment. It is Alex learning to deal with what fate has dealt her. And there's a part of me that's... I don't mind cheesecake as much as the next guy. You know that. I love mm-hmm. a bit of cheesecake. But at the same time... I don't, I don't know. It's I think the very much having your cake and eating it, isn't the it? The covers are the worst offenders. He's mocking. I mean, no, he's not even really mocking. He's taking the comics idea that women are all big-breasted and small-waisted, and telling a decent story about that with a character. Who... But he's doing it with a character who is very shapely. Yeah. So it's. I, mean, I don't know. What do you think? Or do you just not have a problem with it? I, just, I think that's what the story's about, but I think after you get past the first issue, the covers are the worst offenders. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Kick. Once you've got past the first issue, which, let's be honest, she spends that entire issue walking around in various states of undress. Yes, in for, various poses. Often for no reason at all. Yeah. Let's be honest, the scene of her getting out of bed wearing nothing but a thong was a, was not necessary. Subversive artistic commentary. Really? <laughs> or the artist wanting to draw a nude woman. Or that. Yeah, I'm going with that. <laughs> I mean, there are other cases where the fact that she is an attractive woman is the point of the story. Yeah. But there is very much an element here of having your cake and eating it, mm. isn't there? But yeah. at the same time, spoonful of sugar and all that gobbins. Mm. It's alright with, with it mostly being in the first issue. Yeah, alright, yeah. Because ultimately, Alex is actually one of the more relatable characters yeah. in the entire run. Really, isn't mm. she? She's just a normal schlub who this has happened to. Yeah. So, ultimately, you, you do end up being on her side. Even though she's forced to wear this costume that she's really not happy with. No. But, alright, fair enough. Tell us what happens, innit? At Alex's first superhero convention, she's hired to protect a mermaid, who is one of the guests there. However, Alex is the target of the spider. Whilst Alex is being shown around, she meets the original Bullet Girl, who complains about Alex taking over. The spider lines up his shots, having found Alex's weakness, but misses. He turns to see Greg Saunders behind him. Spider's working for the other team now, but it was Greg who hired him, and they ain't done yet. 
Back at home, Alex tells her new lodger about the convention, but soon realises that the girl is Sally Sonic, the girl who Alex's husband accidentally killed himself over. The convention stuff is, is funny. Yeah. And quite satirical. And you get the feeling that he's poking a little bit of fun at fandom here. But yeah. you also get the idea that he's poking a little bit of fun at the people behind the tables mm. as well. So he, he balances it out. It's not mean-spirited. Although I do like that uh, Frank Goshin gets mentioned. Yeah. That they were on Hollywood Squares together. Or, or whatever the analogue of Hollywood Squares is. Some of the dialogue... His dialogue in this and Zatanna is some of the best. Mm. And I do like the Playboy bunny superhero. Yeah. Who's a little bit dense. A little bit. So he's, he's making fun of both sides of the table. I like the scene where she meets the original bullet girl. What, the one who mocks her? Who isn't pleased at all. No, the one who says, my husband made me this costume. What, you turned you out for a hooker? Yeah. It's just quite funny. <laughs> but, uh, no, Etta Candy is the... I mean, are all these Thumbelina and such... Are they all? Do they all have a history in the DC universe? No. No. I don't think so. Right. He's not... The woman in the middle was in Zatanna. Well, yeah, she was at the, um, not Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but you know what I mean? The yeah, spell, yeah. Spellaholics Anonymous, it was called, wasn't it? And, uh, well, it was a lot of people low self-esteem because the gay guy was there as well. Yeah. The gay guy who's not gay. Yeah, well, it's Etta Candy from Wonder Woman. Right. Etta Candy. Uh, Get that? Okay, well done. Uh, millions, the dog is mentioned in this. Yes. And Miss Hollywood is in it from the news by Army who learns Don Vincenzo's dead. Right. Yes. Bit of drug doing there. Well, she says it's her shrinking serum when, when Alex catches her in the toilet shooting up. And she does shrink and get in a bag, which is an actual aeroplane. Yes, the bag turns into an aeroplane, which is, which is quite hysterical. Yeah. I thought that was quite good. The issue itself is is interesting mainly because of the Sally Sonic, who was on the team superheroes yeah. porn site that the her, guy, husband her husband was, was perusing to. earlier on. Yeah, so basically she sought out Alex because, as we will learn, she is seventy five years old, but still trapped in a teenager's body. She's Monster Girl from Invisible, Invincible. Right. And also a subtle commentary on the fact that the superheroes don't age. Yeah. You think it's coincidence that she's 75? Who's 75 this year? Okay, but there's a bit of a difference between the two. Yeah, yeah but... Ten years? Uh, yes, but I, I think these, he's commenting there on the fact that this, these characters stay forever young. Yeah. And in her case, she literally stays forever young. Yeah, whereas characters now on yeah, whereas like Superman, yeah, Superman never acknowledges the fact that he's been around since 1938, does he? No, she does. Yeah, she's been, she's got this, she, this mentality of being what 14, despite the fact Something she's like that, yeah. 75. Um, which leads into the next issue, which is very unsavoury. But um, we'll get to that when we get to that. Okay. But yeah, it was it was a good issue. There's not really a lot to it in terms of what actually happens. There's more subtext to it yeah. than there was it's in the It's all got some ones. cool Saunders spider bits. Yes, and it's the artwork's good and the character interesting and, and the fact that she's hired to do something. You don't get many superheroes who hire themselves out, Luke Cage notwithstanding. Mm. <laughs> good though. Yeah. 
Frankenstein issue 3, The Water, has a cover of Frankenstein fighting a horde of possessed household pets. Yay! Which is always fun. Yeah, and hysterical. Yes. As Frankenstein stands... As Frankenstein stands on the outskirts of Salvation Valley, he is met by a group of soldiers crying for their mothers. Frankenstein asks what happens, and they all say that they drank from the water before hordes of the pets attack them. He does his best to fight them, but is saved by Lady Frankenstein, who is now an agent of Shade. Once Frankenstein is introduced to Shade, a secret organisation created in the Cold War, he and Lady Frankenstein return to Salvation Valley, where they are prepared to fight against the animals, until they are greeted by the water itself, a living biological weapon prototype that controls water. Whilst Frankenstein fights it, the creator talks about why he created it until Lady Frankenstein slices his head off to preserve his knowledge, and Frankenstein shoots the weapon, releasing the water. Lady Frankenstein returns to Shade with the head, and Frankenstein walks away, having heard that the weapon was Shade made, and that he was used to contain it. As he walks away, Shade drops a bomb on the town to cover up the mistake. Um, and... Frankenstein walks off to his next adventure because each and every one of these is basically a single done-in-one adventure of it's, Frankenstein. It's the Twilight Zone star in Frankenstein. It's the Equalizer. It's more wacky than Equalizer. One, no, no, it's the Equalizer with Frankenstein. But the opening of this one with all the dead cats and household animals and the people attacking and the each people other. going those first three pages instantly lead into ba-da-ba-da-ba-dum, ba-da-ba-da-ba-dum. <laughs> but do you know the thing? And then after the credits, you've got Frankenstein arriving. Because you got a problem, odds against you, you phone in Frankenstein. <laughs> okay. And um, uh, this was just a glorious little horror romp, which again tied into the Agents of Shield stuff. I always want to say Shield. Yeah. Agents of Shield. It's a lovely scene, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Because she's even got that white streak in her, like Elsa Lancaster in the film. Mm. Which I thought was absolutely wonderful touch. And Manke's artwork is, is gorgeous. There's a wonderful double-page splash of Frankenstein and Lady Frankenstein just hacking away. Slicing. At rabbits and cats and rats. and Those hamsters. Hamsters and stuff. That's very, very funny. And then he's betrayed by a woman. Uh. Because it's not a noir tale until you've been betrayed by a woman. Lots of great artwork in this one. Good storyline. Frankenstein basically mopping up other people's mistakes again. Yeah. As shared blood. They do point the out he gets used in this issue. Yeah, and there's a part of him that's probably not really too bothered about that. I wouldn't have thought. Something was left undone. And he went and fixed it. Mm-hmm. Good, 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 good. Do you not have anything about that one? Dad just really liked it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's oddly for. I mean, there is a. Um, I'm sure there's an annotated version of this. Probably. Where they go through it panel by panel dissecting everything and telling you how it all links together I, I was more interested in taking on this challenge of reading this seven soldiers thing more as not so much an intellectual exercise but as an exercise in does it work as a story in and of itself which Frankenstein does all of more than do. any of the others all of them do I think I think I would argue all of them do I think yeah. it's the town each individual four issue miniseries works there are some that work less than others yeah I wasn't a big fan of the Clarion strip although that pays greatly into Seven Soldiers issue one yeah. so you can argue that without the Clarion miniseries that final issue wouldn't be as good yeah but 
the Frankenstein stuff. The Frankenstein stuff doesn't work so much as a four-issue miniseries as a series of four-issue, single-issue yeah. stories that have an overarching theme. Yeah. That's how Hush should have been done. The, the more... This is less of a... It's still an overarching theme, but it's more of... It's four single-issue single issue stories that tie up loose ends in the other stories and mm. also have connected elements. Yeah, there's there's some connective tissue between everything, but it just works in and of itself as a glorious balls-out yeah. actioner, doesn't it? It's mm. good. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Doug Mankey was the big revelation of this for me. Yeah. I mean, none of the art was appalling, let's mm. be honest, but... You're not a big fan of Freezer Irvin, though, are you? Um, wait, what did he do? Clarion. No, it, I thought he suited that strip. Yeah. This wasn't a case where you've got, like, Arkham Asylum where you have Dave McKean on it. And I just didn't think that suited the story. Right. But in this, Fraser Irvin's Clarion stuff suited the Clarion story. Yeah. I just wasn't a big fan of it. Of either. No, that just wasn't my... I didn't think it was bad. Yeah. And I don't think it let the side down. It wasn't one of those instances where, like we've mentioned before, you're reading the Superman titles and Jeff Love and Ed McGuinness are knocking it out of the park, putting it in the back of the net, whichever sports euphemism you want to use. Yeah. And then the other three titles are like, oh, these are a bit weak. And then Superman comes out again, oh, it's Jeff Love and Ed McGuinness, this is good again. Yeah. And then, oh, the other three are crap. It wasn't crap. Mm. It was the lesser of the miniseries, but it wasn't bad. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Miracle, issue four, Forever Flavoured Man, <laughs> has a cover of Mr. Miracle's Grave. Oh, that's quite a sad cover, that. Mm. I like that free at last. Yeah. That's quite good. Are we only free when we're dead? Is that what he's trying to say? Or is he setting up... Or is he not dead at all? Ah. But he's free from the shackles that he found himself in life. So by escaping from the life that he was leading, is he now free to lead the, lead the life he wants to lead? All that. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Shiloh Norman is trapped in the Omega Sanction, living through multiple lives of what could have been. In each one, his brother dies before him. The cycle is endless until he lives a life where he works as a warden in a prison for the gods. In this life, he meets oracles, who convinces Shiloh to free him, so that he can free the both of them. Shiloh wakes up in the event horizon of a black hole, where he sees the Omega Sanction, but is freed from it when he talks about it and its own suffering. He lives another life, where his new therapist says that what Dizard missed was the most obvious problem, that Shiloh is scared of his brother dying, and, freed from these shackles, Metron frees Mr. Miracle from the Omega Sanction and the Black Hole. This could have been incredibly confusing. Yeah. Given that it bounces around in time. And different timelines as well, isn't it? Mm. And yet, it isn't. It is remarkable how the man who I and others have accused of being unnecessarily complicated bobbins managed to write this story. Which was the most complicated of them all. And where the ending takes place not only bouncing around in time but through alternate realities. And it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Without you having to sit there 
and look back at pages. I and mean, let's be honest, there were issues in P- Final Crisis where there were pages we had to read more than once. Oh yeah, to figure out what the hell was going on. And yet, in this, you don't. Mm. You're reading it, and it ties everything up perfectly, and it bounces around in time and space and reality. And yet, you're reading it, and it all makes perfect sense. Even though you don't get the impression that Mr. Miracle actually wins at the end of this. Yeah, I'm, I kind of disagree with that. Alright. Because at the beginning of the issue, it's his brother, he's got himself tied up, and his brother says, if you make it out, I'll buy you a, a chocolate sundae or whatever. Yeah. And at the end of the issue... He sat there eating the sundae. Uh, so, you... That's not him escaping from the little trap he's in. That's him escaping from the Omega Sanction Darkseid put on him. So he's kind of freed... Right, alright, yeah, okay. And and Mr. Miracle himself wakes up... From the black hole that he went into. Yeah, so the kid gets what he wants. And Mr. Miracle gets what he wants. And Darkseid beats on Desard because he's letting down... Because the Omega Sanction is turning against him. And because the mother box that they wanted has now become... Chilo Norman. Right. Oh, yeah, alright, go on, then I'll see what... See, originally I read this and thought it was quite downbeat. Yeah. But there's actually... It's a Grant Morrison thing, so there's actually an undercurrent of optimism. Yeah, and then you read... To it. Seven Soldiers issue one, and it goes quite down again. And yeah. And the end where yeah. it's quite optimistic again. Right, okay. See, I was... I, I interpreted it as a... Sl- I mean, I got that at the end of it he was free... Yeah. But death is freedom, mm. in a way, which is what the cover is saying. Yeah. But, all oh, right, yeah, okay, I can go with your interpretation of that. All right, so, if Final Crisis happens before this... Right. And this is Darkseid coming back, so as far as Darkseid is concerned, Final Crisis has happened... Right. How does Darkseid get to the point where he is... I mean, none of it matters with the new 52. Yeah. But how does Darkseid free himself from this? How does Darkseid get out of this? He, he, he doesn't, does he? I don't because remember. Because I've never read The Return of Bruce Wayne and all that stuff. If Morrison is saying that in Final Crisis he gets shot and that drags him that down drags into, him back time, through time. into here... You then get, right, okay, so he's living in human bodies who are then being killed off by Darkseid. Right. Because in Final Crisis, he jumps around and he goes into... What's his face, though? So in the pre-New 52 DC continuity, yeah. Darkseid never gets back No. to being Darkseid and being on Apocalypse. He almost does, because when he goes into the detective guy, yeah. he then starts... His body then starts becoming like Darkseid. Right. But then he gets shot, and he has to go back again. Right. So, and he never got to pay that off, did he not? Batman Incorporated, or The Return of Bruce Wayne, or anything. Yeah. Because The Return of Bruce Wayne is set... I've never read that. Because right. at some point I will sit down with your collection of Grant Morrison, Batman, and just read the whole thing. Yeah. But the my understanding is Batman getting sent back in time was all Darkseid's doing. Yes. But the same thing happens to Darkseid. Yeah. So how does Darkseid get himself back to where he wants to be? Or does he not do? He doesn't, because Batman kills him. Right. Because Batman also gets placed in the Omega Sanction, because he's bouncing through time trying to get back. Right. Um, And Darkseid shows him a vision of what the Earth will be like if Darkseid had his own way, and that's what inspires him to make Batman Incorporated. Right. 
but when he works his way back, he's carrying Darkseid with him through the Omega Sanction. And so in the last issue of The Return of Bruce Wayne, that's them finally killing off Darkseid. Right. So essentially, pre-New 52, Darkseid was killed. Yeah. Right. Okay. Fair enough. I was just wondering, because this leaves Darkseid's fate unresolved. Hmm. But so. that continues from Final Crisis. So essentially, it starts with this, goes into Final Crisis, but then goes back to and this. And then comes back to this. <laughs> yeah. Which is nice and confusing for you, Alright, fair enough, moving on. Uh, oh, also, Oracles, yeah. the god, uh, he's only just introduced in that issue, but he actually goes back to the very beginning. Which I thought was quite interesting on a second reading. The beginning of this? Yeah. Right. Because in the... Sec- in Sam Soldier's issue one, he's the Kirby S guy who bred her. Yeah, see, it is one of those things. Just were covering this as fallen with London Film and Comic Con and your sister having all of her plays and having to squeeze in lots of other stuff, like your brother's prom and you all leaving school and all that stuff. I would have liked to have had time to read it and then read each individual miniseries. Yeah. And read it again. And I just didn't have the time, unfortunately. Time is the fire in which we burn. <laughs> Bulleteer, issue four, Bad Girls, has a cover of Bulleteer standing around. Uh, she's pointing at us. It's kind of cute, in its own way. Isn't it? She's still just standing around. Out of all of them, the Bulleteers have the most boring covers. Yeah, I mean, some covers of her fighting Sonic Sally or whatever her name is. Yeah. Would have been cool. And, you know, just, just... I always get the impression Morrison would be much happier if somebody just did in some 50s and 60s covers. Yeah. And instead he gets these boring poster things. Because that is boring. It's good art. Yeah. Excuse me. It's good art, but dull. <laughs> it's dull good art. Yeah. No, the cover's dull. The art is good. The cover's yeah, yeah, dull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Sally fight each other with Sally having the upper hand. However, enraged, Alex smashes a car engine over Sally's head, knocking her out. Before Alex can take Sally to the hospital, she's visited by Saunders, who tells her that she was the seventh soldier that never was, the spear that was never thrown, and that it's her destiny to help save the world this time. Alex, however, refuses to. And that's more or less it, because most of the issues told in flashback about yeah, it's, Sally's it's origin. About Sally. And I've got to be honest, although it was compelling to read, it's also deeply unsavoury. Mm. Because essentially it's addressing the issue of child abuse. Yeah. Isn't it? Sally Sonic is depicted as being 23, 24, but... No, no, it's the other way around, isn't it? She's drawn as being a young girl, but she's actually 24 years of age. There's still a little bit where they play around how old she looks, because she doesn't look about 14 in no, that particular see, scene. No, what I'm saying is the art undermines the story. The story's unsavoury. What they're doing to her as essentially is child abuse, Yeah, isn't it? And the fact that he ends up selling her to seedy men is quite... I actually thought this was in many ways quite repugnant. Mm. Not the story, not the writing. I wasn't offended by the material. Yeah. But what they were talking about. What they were doing, which I suppose just makes me normal. 
the idea that child abuse turns my stomach, I'm not embarrassed by that. In fact, I think that's quite a good thing. Yeah. So the actual, what they were actually talking about within the story was quite unsavory and quite seedy, and I wasn't a fan of it, and that's a good thing because you're not supposed to be. But it's still very, very uncomfortable reading in places. Mm. However, the art didn't do the story any favours. If they're talking about here that she's 25, 26, 27 years of age but still looks 14, 15, she is clearly being drawn in many of these panels to look 23, 24. So the actual act of what he's doing to her, the actual sex act... Doesn't look as bad. Just looking at the artwork, your mind is not doing, is doing this mental disconnect with what you're actually reading. Yeah. Now... There's a part of me that understands that DC could not publish a comic where this is happening to somebody who looks to be 14. Yeah. And I don't want to read that comic anyway. But the flip side of that is is the artwork undermines slightly the story Morrison is telling. Yeah. Do you get me? And so, whilst the whole thing was icky and very unsavoury and deeply disturbing... I thought the art worked against the story, even though I understand DC's editorial problems with depicting what it is that Morrison is writing. Yeah. Do you get me? Have I explained that right? Yeah, yeah. The the art not helping it does it a favour. Yeah. But also, it makes what should be a very unpleasant act seem more acceptable because of how the artist has drawn her. Yeah, so out of context. Yeah, out of context you can take those panels and just look at them and it looks like a normal healthy adult female having sex with a normal healthy adult male. Yeah. Of which we're not prudish and we have no problem with. But when you read the story, what they're actually doing is repugnant. Mm. And what they're doing to her within the context of the story... Is, is deeply distressing and it's understandable why she ends up cracking up and being who she's being yeah because of what the story is telling us so in that case then is th- what's happening necessary to show us why she became who she is oh no no if, if this was a novel yeah then the story would be as equally disturbing as it is thematically but because it has it's well, because imagery. Yeah, because yeah. The, Im- the images in that case would not be working against the story. Right. The story is drawing her to be a 24, 25-year-old attractive young girl, which mentally she is, Yeah. but physically she is not. Right. Do you get me? Yeah. So that's working against, essentially, what, he's, what this repulsive character is doing, is selling her to these people as an underage girl. Yeah. That's what he's marketing her as Mm. to these people. And that's... What he's doing is appalling, but the art kind of undermines it. So, essentially, the fact that this is told in a comic is a hindrance to it. Yeah. In many ways. I mean, I'm not saying that this kind of thing shouldn't be talked about in comics. I mean, he's doing it all through subtext and metaphor and the metaphor of the superhero medium. Yeah. He's not actually telling a story here of underage child abuse. Hmm. What he's telling, he's doing here is a superhero tale that tackles that issue. And it is entirely possible that I was reading too much into it because of 
my personal feelings on, on this issue and the whole idea of violence against children and violence against women, which I I think we've mentioned on the show before, I've got zero tolerance with. Yeah. And it is one of those issues where I'm not going to straddle the fence. Like with politics and stuff, we'll straddle that line because, you know, that's not what the show's about. But I have zero tolerance for like this. Yeah. At all. And so not only is he hitting you at home with his the theme of the story and it's supposed to be disturbing mm. and I would hope that any right thinking people would find it disturbing because if you don't find what he's doing to Sally Sonic disturbing I, I, I would seriously question your values but at the same time the art is not drawing her to look like she's 13, 14, 15 yeah. it is in the early stages of the strip yeah. Well, she's gets thrown into the the home for children. He clearly draws her as a 13, 14-year-old girl, despite her protestations that she's 24. Yeah. So... Maybe she ages, but very slowly. It's possible, because there's no way she's 14 years of age... In the present day. In the present day. But, again, that goes against what the story is telling us... The, what, what is who is the I just keep referring to him as this guy who is he oh, I can't remember the one who wants to be John Constantine yeah with with his speech patterns Dennis he he's selling her to people as an underage child as an underage woman yeah but he's basically saying you know but she's There's not a loophole because yeah but yeah. look at her she's not so I don't know I, I, I was a little bit there was a little bit of an ick factor Hmm. to it that like I say I wasn't offended by the story matter I, it was more of an ick factor of me feeling that these guys didn't really get punished yeah. in the way that I thought they should have done because he even gets a hooked on drugs yeah. so he's like a real peach of a guy unless I missed something somewhere I didn't see that I saw, didn't see that he didn't get away with this no or was I just a little bit too sensitive to it? No, there, there is that though. And to an extent, whilst what happens isn't necessary, the fact that something did happen is necessary. Yeah. I mean, it does give, a, it does give you an understanding of why Sally is the way that she is. And it tackles two uh, topics at the same time with comic characters not aging as well. Yeah. But... And I... It's one you don't want to say I enjoyed it because, like I say, it did make me feel. You enjoyed the story more than the I enjoyed matter. the story more than the subject matter. But again, it's entirely possible I was I was taking too much from it that he may never have intended. I don't know. I think there's definitely something there. Yeah. Well, see, with Grant Morrison, you can never be sure because he does layer these things at such a level. I think there's the even subtext in the Invisibles. Yeah. So I know I, I, I definitely think it's there. Right, and and I thought it was a little bit unsavoury that these people didn't get their comeuppance. Maybe they did. It's possible. Yeah. Or maybe she was too doped up to care. At this point, she quits, doesn't she? Yeah. Bulleteer Alex quits. And I I kind of like that actually because it plays into the whole story that it's all destiny that they're all together in this story. Yeah. Well, it also plays into she feels for what Sally has been through. The paths are kind of parallel. Yeah. 
they are both striving both to do... They're both victims of... Uh, yeah, of men. Fish men. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So More there subtext. Is, there is a strong feminist tract running through this story that only becomes clear after you've read all four issues, which takes me back to issue one being Cheesecake. Yeah. And then he takes you on this journey. Well, actually, that's actually quite clever then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Because he puts you in issue one where she's pausing with her breasts out and her ass out at every available opportunity. Yeah. So by the time you get to the end of the four issue miniseries, there is a strong feminist track to the storyline. Mm. where she's now willing to stand on her own two feet and not take any cack from anybody. Yeah. So, alright, if he's done that deliberately, fair play to him. But there was, there was an element of this one that, that just made me feel a little bit icky. And rightly so, given what the subject matter is about. So with this and uh, the Mr. Miracle one, it's getting a lot darker near the end. Yes. I mean, certainly issue four of that bulleteer was incredibly dark stuff. But it's dark because there's a certain element of that you read about that on the news yeah and your mum's job is to deal with situations similar to that so it's there's a lot of it though that's more psychologically dark like with that issue there's a lot of it you don't see but yeah it's all and issue four of Mr Miracle you don't see anything that's as bad as the the beaten scene in issue three but it's still quite psychologically dark yeah this one was more disturbing for its themes than what you actually saw yeah you don't actually see anything but you see enough to yeah yeah and from Dennis coercing her into because he's a scumbag yeah of the highest order because he's the one who convinces her to go onto that website and do all this for these other men and He's the one because who's pushing her money. into doing it. Yeah. And he's complaining that, well, I go out and work every day. And I just don't have time to go out and be a superhero at night. And he's just... He's just a... So, a domestic abuse of text. Yeah. He's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Mm. So, it's an abusive relationship. Yeah. And it's... it's. Uh, I just wanted him to get his head handed to him. <laughs> in that way that I always want people like that who do that kind of thing to get the head handed to them yeah and I just felt he got away with it maybe he's on Dagobah when it blew up not Dagobah maybe he's on Alderaan when it blew up along with Jar Jar yeah with a bit of luck yeah <laughs> anyway that was that was quite heady wasn't it yes let's move on moving swiftly on to some fun stories oh yeah we have issue 4 of Frankenstein Frankenstein in Furryland which has a cover of Frankenstein fighting alongside the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a poster cover, but it's a funny one. Yeah. Where is it? I mean, I'd love to see who they're shooting at, other than us, obviously. Now, working for Shade, Frankenstein heads to the Himalayas, where he finds a nebula eating a winged horse. The two fight until Frankenstein learns of Nebula's fight with the Ultramarine Corps and kills him. Upon completing his mission, Frankenstein is given a new one. He locates the castle revolving as the Shida load the Undri before returning to their home one million years in the future. Frankenstein confronts Gloriana and tells her that he has killed her husband Melmoth. Before she can finally kill him, he reveals that he has rigged the other vessels in her fleet before blowing them all up. He runs away from the Shida and takes control of the castle revolving, bringing it back to the present day. Bum bum bum, and that in many ways is the end the death of Nebula is essentially the end of the story it ties up two 
loose ends, really. Hmm. Because Frankenstein doesn't really get a lot to do in Seven Swords of Victory issue one, does he? I love the ending of this. I love all in a day's work for Frankenstein, which is a glorious two-page panel of him killing the Borg Queen. No, that's not yet. It looks like it. Yeah. It looks like he's stabbed her, but he hasn't. That's just him jumping on the vessels. And the, there's a lovely two-page splash of whatever the hell that is, but it's gorgeous. Hmm. That's the castle revolving in there, all the vessels it's, it's, blown up. I really enjoyed this Frankenstein series. Yeah. Because it seemed like it was fun. Yeah. And he, he didn't feel the need to take it down any dark roads. I mean, even though thematically it's tying up a lot of um, elements from other strips. Hmm. I think this one ties up the loose ends of the Nebula. Yeah. And... Yeah, well, Nebula gets killed. He kills yeah. Nebula, doesn't he? He's going to the Himalayas as well, yeah. where Misty is. Yes, and Nebula which ties is sent in. to kill Misty. Yeah. So it does tie in very cleverly. Yeah, and it's also setting up for the final one with him bringing... Yeah, for the final issue. ...the Bug Queen... <laughs> Back to the present day. Yeah. Is that her official name? Yeah. <laughs> the Borg Queen. You've not, not really got much on that one, have we? Not much really happens. Fun, though. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a fun read. All of Frankenstein is. Yeah. Um, that's why I was quite disappointed with the new 52, actually. What, it's, Frankenstein and Agents It's of a shit. character I really like, being done by Jeff Lemire, who's a writer I really like, but it just wasn't as fun as Morrison's Frankenstein. Did you not? See, Frankenstein Agent of Shade seemed to have quite a good following, not enough to keep the book alive. I just never got into it. Alright, fair enough. Okay. Seven Soldiers of Victory, Issue 1, The Miser's Coat, has a cover by J.H. Williams III of the new Seven Soldiers team standing inside an emblem similar to that of Issue Zero's. Except they don't actually know that they're the Seven Soldiers team, do they? No, they don't. At any point. No one does, except no. for us. Except for us. Very good. In the very beginning, there was a young shining knight named Justina, who dared challenge the Sheeda Queen. Sometime later, the new gods came to Earth and gave mankind knowledge, as well as creating the original superhero, Oracles, who possessed the seven weapons of the gods, but was imprisoned by the Sheeda and his belongings stolen by Melmoth. Years later, in the days of Camelot, King Arthur set out to reclaim the Undry from the Sheeda, but he and all of his men were killed. In the present day, the Guardian fights against the Shida as Carla and her mother try to escape in a car. With Ed's blessing, Jake leaves him to go look for Carla as Alex drives Sally to the hospital. Vanguard senses Justina nearby and drops Zatanna and Misty off to find her. Misty knocks Zatanna out and says that the only way to stop the harrowing is to replace the Queen. As the daughter of Gloriana and Melmoth leaves, Zatanna is woken up by Ali Kazoo, who gives Zatanna her bottled widium. Misty comes across Clarion, who distracts her momentarily. However, it's all the time Tikal needs to take her magic die off her. With the dice in his possession, Clarion leaves Misty and heads to the castle revolving. On the castle, Frankenstein is fighting with Shida until Clarion possesses him to take them both into the future. With no weapons to fight Gloriana, Misty panics, but Zatanna remembers the prophecy of the Seven Soldiers and uses a spell to tell them all to strike. After speaking the words, Zatanna is hit by Carla's car, who is then reunited with Jake. Justina and Gloriana continue to fight until Justina is thrown off the edge of the castle. Mr. Miracle storms into Club Darkseid where he frees Oracles and promises to give Darkseid the stunt of a lifetime. 
He is shackled before he is shot through the head. Justina is rescued by Vanguard as Spider returns to Gloriana with Oracle's spear and shoots her with an arrow. As she falls off the castle, Alex loses control of the car and crashes it straight into the recovering Gloriana, killing both her and Sally. In the following days, Ali Kazum takes Justina to school. Clarion becomes the new Sheeda Queen. Cyrus Gold says goodbye to Slaughter Swamp. And Millions the Dog becomes the new owner of Vincenzo Estate. <laughs> Darkseid stands at Mr. Miracle's grave, leaves a flower, and walks away. As he does so, Mr. Miracle performs the stunt of a lifetime and escapes from death. Um. The... Go on, you go on first on this one. Right, well, it's nice that if you go back to the beginning, they tell it very linear in this. Mm. So you get what happens at the very beginning with the fight with the Shining Knight, even though that only happens in the present day, but still taking place in the past. Yeah. And there's the nice bits with the new gods and oracles, where even though he came up in Mr. Miracle, it shows how he was around from the very beginning with his weapons and the Undry and that. Yeah. Um, and I like that they all had their own definitive endings. Um, and they all kind of tied into each other. And Clarion becomes the Sheeta Queen, so he's the girl Kirby introduced him as. Yeah. And there's the cool moment where Zatanna tells them all to strike, even though she doesn't know who the Seven Soldiers are, or that she's one of them. Um... Not only that, but the way the story's told. So you have bits that are in prose, you have bits that are told through a newspaper. Even in the newspaper, the story is being told through the uh, word search. And the omniscient narrator. Yeah. With his little DC type in. Did you get that... He's Grant Morrison. He's Grant Morrison, yeah. But did you get that he was Cyrus Gold? Yeah, I thought so. Cause I because he actually well. he actually says that in the beginning bit. He doesn't, doesn't he? say he is that. I've finished this repair for Cyrus Gold, so is he repairing it for himself? And in the very beginning, he was the person who said that Cyrus Gold killed the children. We're assuming the children were the newsboy army. Mm. The only person they met in that building was him. Yeah, you've also got Morrison's little ticks again. He's actually tapping on the panel of the comic. Yeah. Or tapping on the the wall, the page between us and the character in the comic, and he's wearing the DC pin. And he's so wearing his DC he's very pin. Very definitely Grant Morrison. So it's it doesn't look like Grant Morrison. He looks a bit older. Yeah. See, I'll let you go first on this because I actually found the conclusion a little bit disappointing. I really enjoyed the different mini series that comprised the bulk of the story, and I really liked the idea of a team of heroes fighting a huge war almost by accident and never actually meeting apart from tangentially each individual story had its own merits and was pretty substantial and interesting read in and of itself with some thematic elements that Morrison's used before the idea of a substrate of superheroes that are almost mundane stars on the same level of reality TV stars and some get into it for the sake of being famous there's his obsession with magic and fetishism but it was never overbearing in this like it was in some of his stuff his handling of certain characters also showed his flow for dialogue and black humour especially in Zatanna Bulleteer highlighted one of the mundane heroes Morrison seems fascinated by when he's not dealing with the big guns 
of the DCU, and Guardian was almost a straightforward superhero tale, replete with tragic backstory. Again, Morrison's love of the superhero theme, that you have to become better than you are in some way and rise above to achieve greatness, is echoed by a number of the characters, Zaytana and Guardian specifically, and Mr. Miracle more obliquely. The idea of DC being the home to the legacy hero is also touched upon, in a similar way to Morrison's cry that Batman and Robin will never die in his subsequent Batman run. The theme of being young and not trusting cynical old adults also seems familiar, and that old world metatextual comes into play with Sally Sonic, who is 75 and has never aged, which I mentioned earlier on. The Newsboy Legion and Ed Stargard are also examples of his obsession with youth. Yeah within the confines of the story that he tells, that youth are rebellious and the youth rebel against the system and don't and question things, whereas when you get older you don't necessarily do that the same. That's a standard Morrison trope. So all of that is correct, present and correct, and you feel that he goes to this well a little bit too often. And if you think that, then none of this is going to change your mind about his work. Although I think this is reasonably accessible... It's because when you get right down to it, the actual story and the ideas aren't all that complex. And Morrison's problems before have been that he he needlessly makes things appear more complex than they are, often, I think, to make him just look smarter. I'm not saying he's not smart, because he clearly is. But there was an element of that, that criticism applies to this last issue, that I thought was laid out and told with more wacky concepts and ideas than it really needed to be with the stuff like the crossword puzzle and the newspapers that form part of the storyline and it was all very good and it was all very clever but at some point I'm being I feel I'm being asked to marvel at the writer's cleverness rather than enjoy the story that he's telling me and he's not done any of this stuff yeah. in any of the other miniseries he's just told his story and he's done it exceptionally well some of the characters in this final chapter get short shrift, Frankenstein gets one page but it it also felt like a number of the loose ends were tied up really quickly in the newspaper narrative rather than in the, the story itself and it felt like he, he was done with it in Frankenstein 4 and this was just tying up loose ends because he felt the need for this miniseries to have a splashy finale. I mean, I can't fault the artwork. The artwork's uniformly excellent. Each artist is unique, but suits the particular strip. J.H. Williams III actually changing his art within this issue, depending upon which character he's talking about and what part of the story he's telling. And even the time period. And even, yeah. It's Kirby, and then he's really... Detailed. Yeah, and it, it is the artwork is faultless. But so I was, I didn't not like it, but I was a little bit dis- let down. Not disappointed. I was a little bit let down by the final issue. I just some of it's that's that swifted away. Yeah, the the sheeta just disappeared. Yeah, the, the sheeta are just like they were irrelevant to begin with. Yeah, weren't they? And but, it's like you get rid of them. On the other, there's bits of it where not all of it is apparent. Like when we talk about the last issue of Mr. Miracle, there's endings there, whether they're apparent or not, and it's kind of the same with this. 
like everyone has their own endings, but some of them aren't shown or some of them glossed over briefly. Like the the bulleteers ending happens in a flash forward. Yeah. And um there there is lots of it that I just brushed over, but at the end it becomes Mr. Miracle's story. Because it ends with him coming out the grave. Yeah, and it seems a bit odd that after all of this it should become his story. I mean, when you were reading his miniseries, you got the impression he was more important yeah. than maybe some of the other characters. He's kind of more important in the DCU. Than maybe other writers have, which, have allowed him to be. Which made him more important than everyone else. Yeah. He did seem like he, he did become much more than you thought he was going to be. Which, in a sense, he does become... But you don't see that in this story. And then Darkseid just shoots him through the head. Yes. Which was my thing that, all oh, right, so Mr. Miracle just dies then. Mm. And then he doesn't. We should read Final Crisis next. Yeah, we should follow Final Crisis up with this. Ultimately, this is a noble attempt to do a crossover that isn't really a crossover, but is really. Yeah. And the fun of it is taking all the disparate elements from the different series and making them connect. Which he does for you in a lot of cases. He does it subtly, mm. but it's not like the Final Crisis thing again, where we had to go back and look at other things and wonder what the hell was going on. Yeah. He points out, but in a very clever and subtle way, when there are little crossover elements. Even in this issue, yeah. they're all fighting the same fight together, but they never... But they never actually get together. Yeah. And it's bold and ambitious unreasonably accessible even though it's got its roots in the very fabric of the DC universe and continuity but there's no need to be steeped in DC history to understand this because a lot of it they're all unknowns or they're all new incarnations of legacy heroes or fresh starts of yeah which is DC's shtick Zatanna's an old character but they only make one reference but she continues on from her father yeah and they only make one reference to any other story other than this yeah just briefly pay lip service to uh, identity crisis but is that another thematic element that then that we've only just come to well we've got the end of it the concept of DC as the legacy hero universe because Zatanna is the only Zatanna but before her there was a father yeah so she's technically a proper legacy hero she is the child carrying on in the footsteps of the father mm. and it's the same with Mr. Miracle he's a legacy hero yeah and so there's an element of that as well that we, we didn't mention in the previous issues or episodes or issues or whatever um, I liked it I, I think you may need to be familiar with comics as an art form to get the best out of it but you don't need to yeah. be familiar with DC's backstory and continuity to understand it and there enjoy a, it a lot of this which, which is playing with storytelling like with the which is another Morrison thematic well, trope in a way it's kind of handled pretty well yeah, his, his social commentary as well isn't as heavy-handed as Mark Miller. Yeah. I mean, I think there was only the Westworld issue that made me roll my eyes. And again, his exploration of what it means to be a hero, which is a common story device in superhero comics. In fact, in heroic storytelling, full stop, whatever it is, it's well thought out. It's not akin to being beaten over the head like when we did What's So Funny About Truth, Justice and the American Way. Yeah. Which was a story both of us thought was awful, 
but yet makes the top ten Superman stories. Yeah. Ever. So, that was good. It was a lot better than even, I thought it was going to be. Even the storytelling itself with the newspaper, that's... It may be unnecessary, but it only happens for the Guardian. Yeah. Who works for the newspaper. Who works for the newspaper. And the Kirby stuff is laid out like Kirby. Like Kirby would do it. The, the Camelot is laid out like old pieces of art. It's laid out like the old... There's an old newspaper strip set on the high seas, and I cannot for the life of me remember what it is. Mm. But it's laid out like that. Yeah. Which is quite impressive. And it's all told, I actually really quite enjoyed it. And I think it's helped by the fact that that is a complete story. These two volumes here are it. There's none of your usual filth of, well, you need to read this tie-in that runs through this comic that you don't care about. Yeah. Although it's four separate interconnected miniseries and a wraparound mini. Issue zero and issue one or issue one and issue two, whatever. Everything you need is there. Yeah. In those two volumes. And what's good about it as well, that everything you need is there, but it, it becomes richer when you read yeah. the JLA classified and Final Crisis. Yeah, especially with relates, as it relates to Dark Side. Yeah, it's not Final Crisis where you need to read everything as far back as Animal Man. Hmm. But no, this stands on its own. And it's but it's helped by other things. But it's not, not necessary. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed that there was never any of that let's be honest we've both picked something and the other has gone oh god I've got to read this now <laughs> let's be honest that yeah. has happened but I never everything I've ever picked no no not everything yeah but with this one I actually I, I mean this week we talked about earlier on we've just not had time to do proper prep the only day I got to read these was Monday and I was really like, I'm not looking forward to reading all of this, what I've got left on Monday. Because I had a good two-thirds of that second hardcover to read yeah. in one sitting. Because otherwise I wouldn't have a Tuesday night, I couldn't do it Wednesday night, and tonight we're recording. Mm. So I had to read all of it. And it was not a chore to go, oh, go on, I'll read another one. Yeah. I actually got to the end of one and went, go on, let's read another one. <laughs> let's read another one. Because I'd planned on staggering it throughout the night. Right. And what we ended up doing was, you weren't in. Adam was wherever Adam is, floating around upstairs, and your sister was doing rehearsals for a show, so she wasn't in. Yeah. So we didn't have to have the TV on, which was delightful. Yeah. So basically, I just sat in the living room, your mum was at the side of me, fiddling on her iPad, and I just ploughed through the whole thing, because it was perfectly quiet, and each issue was just, oh, go on, let's read the next one. Yeah. And it was never a chore to actually sit down and read it. Is each issue is good enough you want to read the next lot just so you can get back to that yeah. series. Was, you're doing that for every single there series. There was occasionally with something like Bulleteer and Frankenstein I was can I actually read the next issue of Frankenstein and then come back. Yeah. And I never did that. I always stuck with the but way it's presented. Like, you read the next Mr. Milk you're oh that was so good I yeah. want to read the next Mr. Milk Yeah. But no alright okay I'll read Frankenstein because that's next now okay I'll stick with Bulleteer. <laughs> and I ended up reading I ended up reading most of it on Monday night I was only left with the final issue yeah. which I deliberately saved for today so that the end of the story was fresh in my head for the recording. Yeah. But, no, it was never a chore to sit down and read it. Even Volume 1, which we've not kind of alluded back to this time, Volume 1 was really good as well. There was only really Clarion that made me go, mm. But even then, I didn't not like it once I sat down to do it. Yeah. So it was, it was quite a pleasant, a pleasant surprise, because I wouldn't have picked that up myself. 
because it is superhero comics as Vertigo or Vertigo does superhero comics isn't yeah. it really but it was good mm. and I actually really quite enjoyed it it was very very pleasant it's, it's, I think it's Morrison doing it complicated Morrison but doing it right yeah it's, it's got everything in there that you expect him to have in there but it's never obnoxious it's actually yeah. readable and enjoyable on its own merits. It's not quite the Invisibles, but it's not quite action comics. No, it it, it occupies a nice little middle ground where you're reading it and going, "This is really good." Yeah, okay, but that's all the time. <laughs> Next time, unless you've got any final thoughts. No, no, okay. I I really liked it. It is that that goes without saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, not necessarily. You've not liked everything he's done, Carl. Well, you can't stand Arkham Asylum. I went in for Morrison, but I came out preferring the artwork, and even mm. that was a bit... Mm. Okay. Next time on an all-new episode, we're going to carry on those 70s shows. Oh, we? Yeah, we're going back to the 70s. Okay. Because we're doing the Clone Saga. The uh, original yes, 1970s Spider-Man Clone Saga, which, as of this writing, has been cut down, lovely listener, in the book, to three shows, not four. I don't think it's four. Do you know, what, no, you know. Have when, you gone through another? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you get, you get, you plan, you plot, you plan, you plot, you plune. Yes. Those two and then well. the other one of us sits and yeah. mocks your idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get to be four episodes. Pretty much. <laughs> but you sit down and you think this is a four-episode show. This is a two-episode show. And then you get to it, like we did with this. Yeah. This is in the book as four episodes, but it wasn't. And I'm doing all the notes for Clone Saga now, and I'm going. This isn't a four-episode show. Yeah. So that's been trimmed down as well to three. So good, in many ways, mm-hmm. or condensed. Yes, I think. So I hope you enjoyed us talking about Seven Soldiers of Victory. Certainly, a, a little bit of step out of my comfort zone, which is always fun. It's always interesting to stretch yourself a little bit. Yes. Next time, it's more standard superheroic fur, <laughs> so it's Michael who'll probably be a little bit bored. I would imagine. Hope you'll enjoy. Hope you'll enjoy us. You always make that mistake. Hope you will join us for that. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>